Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury, and we hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and we hope it will be entertaining for you as well. Um, we are we are doing well. We're not, we're doing a sermon series as well as a podcast series focusing on the Catechism of the Global Methodist Church. Now we have this catechism because it's important for any church to not only clearly define what we believe, but also to make sure that there are resources available for the people in our churches to know what we believe. And one thing that's, that I, I have encountered a lot um, throughout my life in, in the United Methodist Church, and now moving into the Global Methodist Church, is a whole lot of people who are lifelong churchgoers, lifelong Methodists who really don't know what we believe, um, which is a, a major factor in, in why the UMC got itself into the mess it got itself into. Um, because it's not just the laity, it's not just the, the people in the pews. Pastors have the same problems. Um, so it, it's it's sort of, yeah, and that surprises people, by the way, but it's... It, Trust me, as a as a graduate of United Methodist Seminary, a lot of your pastors don't know a lot of this stuff either. Um, and so we have this catechism, and, and the reason we have this is because it does all those things. It, it affirms what we believe. It teaches it. Now, it's not it doesn't go in-depth in and of itself, okay? Um, it outlines what the beliefs are. And then it provides scripture references to back up those beliefs. But it doesn't sit here and explain in detail Um how we formulate that or why. Uh, that's my job as your pastor. So this past Sunday, I sort of took the first of the ecumenical affirmations in the catechism. So the catechism is broken up into two parts. Ecumenical affirmations, which are things that all Christians believe, and then there are Wesleyan Methodist distinctives, the things that make Methodists unique amongst the Christian world. So we took the first of the ecumenical affirmations, which is, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And that's what I preached on on Sunday. And I'm going to go a little deeper into that today. Because on Sunday mornings, I just don't have the time to do a deep dive into some of this stuff. Um, and in all honesty, in a podcast format, I can't go as deep as someone nerdy like me might want to go. Uh, that really requires a, a, a back-and-forth conversation. Uh, but we're going to do our best. So we have this. This is the first of the ecumenical affirmations. It is pulled straight out of the Nicene Creed. It is the opening line of the Nicene Creed, uh, which is the standard creed uh, of Christian belief always and everywhere. We, we recite the Apostles' Creed on Sunday mornings, which is a shortened and simplified version of the Nicene Creed. That's not... That's not how the, the creed was written. It wasn't, it was not, the Apostles' Creed wasn't written with the intention of being a shorter, simpler version of the Nicene Creed. Um, in fact, I think the Apostles' Creed might predate it. Um, but it, they express the same things. The Nicene Creed is just more detailed and therefore harder to memorize and harder to recite uh, together. And so we tend to recite the Apostles' Creed on Sundays because it's faster and it's a little easier, but it covers the same stuff. But the Nicene Creed is the one that is considered um, the definitive creed for Christian belief. And this is the opening line. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, 
the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Now, I talked on Sunday about what it means that God is Father. And we used the opening chapter of Genesis to explore God making the heavens and the earth. There's more to it than that. Um, and if you, if you have a copy of that catechism in front of you, you can just look underneath it and you have these, these follow-up questions, right? Do you believe in God, right? That's Hopefully the answer is yes. Uh. <laughs> um, then who is God? God? And the answer is God is the one true holy and living God, the eternal spirit, the holy trinity. And I think this is where things maybe get a little confused. And I think the, the idea of the Trinity might throw people off, of course, because it's a very difficult concept. And it's, to some extent, a little bit beyond human understanding. Let's start with God is the one true, holy, and living God. This is... I, 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 I get the sense... That this is one of those ideas that modern Christians don't often pay a lot of attention to. Now, some of that is because uh, a lot of us have spent our lives living in places where um, there really are no other competing religions, and so there's no there's no real questioning of which God is the God or not. Um, but also, there is the the sort of postmodern idea that yes there there is one god and um different cultures have different names for him and different cultures describe him differently but it's all the same thing um but the the bible really quite emphatically rejects that notion and of course the people of the old testament and the people of the new testament were living in a world that was full of many gods everyone had all these other gods that they worshipped all the time uh, in different ways and for different reasons, and uh, that was a, a constant temptation for God's people in the Old Testament, and it may have been something of a temptation in the New Testament for some of the early churchgoers. It's not really clear how big of a problem that actually was, uh, although I would imagine it was something that they did deal with from time to time. But just... There is a there is a prayer in Judaism instituted at the very beginning here in Deuteronomy chapter six, and this is this is essentially their spiritual equivalent of the Lord's prayer. And listen to this: this is what they pray all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, you can also translate that as, The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Really important, because they lived in a world with many gods. And there is, uh, as you read through the Old Testament, one of the things you notice is that, it, especially in the, in, the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, other gods are not... They're not called false gods in the first five books of the Bible. 
they're not even always called idols. They're, they're, they're referred to as gods. And this is because the, the earliest Hebrews didn't quite grasp that there was only one God. God sort of takes them along this journey slowly. So initially what he's saying is, I'm your God and you don't worship these other gods. You only worship me. I'm better than all these other gods you might worship. And as time goes on, he begins to, as they settle in the land, he begins to sort of slowly reveal more to them. Right? Hey, these idols they're making, they're nothing. They're just handmade things made by people. They're not gods at all. Um, and that becomes really prevalent in the historical books, Samuel and Kings, as well as in the prophets and in the wisdom literature. Um, and by the time you get to the New Testament, Paul is convinced that all these other gods, these pagans worship, are in fact demons. That there is an actual spiritual entity behind these things they're worshiping, but it is a malevolent one, and it's one that is not a god at all. Um, which means not powerful. It means that these gods that they worship are only powerful insofar as their worshippers allow them to be. They cede their authority as God's image bearers in the world to these idols they worship who are demons. Um, so this is a really important idea in the Bible. God is the one true, holy, and living God. There is no other God out there you can worship. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. And again, it's kind of an unpopular idea, but it's true today. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. Now, we say that, and we need to talk about what that means. Um, there is a, a phenomenon that's been going on throughout the Muslim world for, I don't know how long, long time. If I had to guess, probably for as long as there's been a Muslim world. Um, but certainly in recent years, it's become something that more and more people in the, outside the Muslim world are hearing about. But there are Muslims all throughout the Middle East and, and parts of Southeast Asia who are... Um, they have dreams in which uh, Isa, who that's their name for Jesus, appears to them in a dream and calls them to follow him. So you have this whole religion, which, and I, I want to be clear, I, I believe Islam is a false religion. I don't believe that God that they worship is real. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. But the biggest one is simply that the character of the God described in the Quran is nothing like the character of the God described in the Bible, despite what people may say. Um, but they do acknowledge, they, they, they consider Jesus a prophet and one of the greatest of the prophets. So they revere Jesus. And this appears to be enough to open the door for Jesus to actually reach these people individually in their dreams. Now, what happens afterwards is a bit obscure because, of course, living in a Muslim country and converting from Islam to Christianity is quite dangerous. And if you do it, you, you don't usually broadcast it. But something is happening where Jesus is reaching out to those people in their dreams. And that's one way that they might come to the Father. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle, there's a thing that happens at the very end where one of the, the sort of main lieutenants of, of 
the enemy who worships Tash, this false god described by Lewis in the book, um, when he meets Aslan for the first time, he has this moment of realization and says, ah, okay, Aslan is who I want to worship. In other words, he has this realization that he was wrong about what Aslan is like, and, and what Aslan is really like is the god he thought he was worshiping all along, but he wasn't. And that's meant to represent this idea that there are people in the world who are who refuse to worship Jesus. Their, their idea of who Jesus is has been tainted by um, issues in the church or poor experiences or, or, or whatever, right? Uh, but when they really, truly meet him for the first time, they will worship him and love him. And C.S. Lewis actually thought that this could even happen after your death, that, that the Lord knows the state of your heart, and, and he knows that if you really saw Jesus for who he is, you would welcome him, and that those people might be saved. Um, and my mind on hearing that would go to, for instance, the, the people who were perhaps uh, victims of abuse in the Catholic Church or the recent Southern Baptist Church who left the church as a result. Um, but the God they're rejecting is not the God we know, it's, it's this distorted, horrific image of God corrupted by these evil men. And his point was, God may not hold them accountable for rejecting that false God they were, they were presented with. He may not hold them accountable for being so traumatized by the sins of others that they, they cannot come to faith on their own when he knows that if they saw him for who he really is, they would accept him. So when we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. What we are really, what we need to understand that his meaning is, um, salvation is God's business, not ours. We don't get to proclaim if someone died that well we know they didn't really worship Jesus. We don't know what was in their hearts, but God does, and we will all be surprised by some of the people we meet in the resurrection and by some of the people we don't meet in the resurrection. And we ought to stay humble about that. We can, we can acknowledge that our God is the only real God. We can acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But we don't know what Jesus is doing when we can't see him working in the hearts of others. Uh, and that's, that doesn't mean we, we uh, soften up our stance on sin. That doesn't mean we, uh, we, we think that other religions are just as valid as ours. I don't think they are, but... Uh, it does mean that we understand Jesus can work in ways we don't always understand. Uh, so God is the one true, holy, and living God. The only God who is valid. Our religion worships the only true God. Now what does that mean for the Jewish people? Many people will say that they worship the same God as we do. And, you know, that's not entirely untrue. We, we can't just sit here and say, that, well, no, they don't. Uh <laughs> Because we use the same scriptures as they do. Uh, and, and Jesus was a Jew. And Paul was a Jew. And Peter was a Jew. And, and Paul and Peter never saw themselves as anything other than faithful Jewish men. In their minds, what they were doing was practicing Judaism as God meant it to be practiced. I think, again, the answer is, we don't know what God's going to do there. But they are people made in God's image, and we're supposed to love them. So God is the one, true, holy, and living God. And God is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And 
the way we define this is these that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct but inseparable, eternally one in essence and power. And the thing is, that's probably about as far along as we can go in defining them. We, we, the, the actual question in the Catechism is, what is the mystery of the Trinity? And there is mystery there because we can't quite comprehend it. We can't quite comprehend how that works, how God can be three persons but not three separate persons. Now, I've heard all kinds of wonderful metaphors for this. The best metaphor probably relates to music, right? If you uh, play a chord on a piano, you have one sound with different notes within it, right? And each note is distinct, but in that moment, they are not separate from the chord as a whole. If you remove any one of those notes, you don't have the chord anymore. If you play any one of those notes by itself, it's no longer a chord. It's just a, a note. Um, it's not a perfect analogy. Nothing ever will be, but that's probably the best you can come to understanding this, how this works. It's, it's, frankly, I think it's one of the reasons God gave us music and made it work the way it did it, so that we have that, that thing that will get us kind of close to understanding how the Trinity can be. So if you think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, think of like a chord of three notes. Three distinct things, but they are not separate. They're one thing with distinctives. And it's again, it's not accurate. It's not it's not 100% accurate, but it's the closest we can come with our limited capacity for understanding. We'll always, we'll always struggle with understanding the Trinity uh, in a way that, that is totally 100% accurate until we are on the other side of the grave. And then I think perhaps at that point we'll, we'll figure it out. Or God will grant us the understanding. Now, how is God almighty? So we say God is infinite in power, infinite in wisdom, infinite in justice and goodness and love. Now, sometimes we'll hear words like omniscient and omnipotent, right? All-knowing, all-powerful. And that's not quite the same thing as what the Catechism says. There's a slight difference here, right? If God is infinite in power and wisdom and justice and love and goodness, right? There's nothing God cannot do. That doesn't necessarily mean that God does not refrain from some things, right? Um, certainly God does not always exercise the power he could exercise. One of, one of my favorite uh, theologians N.T. Wright points out on occasion that, you know, if you read the Old Testament closely, it appears that God doesn't always know exactly what's going to happen next. And that if you read it closely, it, you can you can get a picture of God less like uh, someone who knows exactly what will happen at all times and more like um, a chess grandmaster who's always, you know, several moves ahead and it's like it's like god is the grandmaster and he's playing someone who's never touched the game before and so he's always several moves ahead um, and i think that works better with this idea of him being infinite in wisdom god is infinite in wisdom he is so wise he is so smart he may not he may not know exactly how the future will play out but he is so in the sense that he may not be able to he, he may not 
see the future like we sometimes imagine him seeing. Not because he couldn't, but perhaps because he chooses not to. But he can certainly figure out what's going to happen pretty well. I've always found that a really interesting way to look at it. I don't know if that's uh, exactly true or not. Maybe God knows everything that will happen. Maybe God doesn't. It's within his power to know those things. I think that's true. It's within his power to shape events however he wishes. And I think that's why I actually like what they've put in the catechism here about God is infinite in power and wisdom rather than God is all-knowing. I think this fits better with, with what the Bible describes, that God's wisdom is so infinite that nothing surprises him, nothing takes him, you know, we, we can't outwit him, we can't outsmart him, we can't defeat him. He is infinite in wisdom and power and, of course, justice and goodness and love. All important things to understand. We Methodists, we, we have a, a long history of kind of focusing on the love attribute. That God is infinite in love for us. But I think it's good to be reminded that God is also infinite in power, in justice, in goodness. Because God rules heaven and earth. He is the ruler, and you want a ruler who is infinite in justice and goodness and wisdom and power. That's the ideal ruler, and that's who God is. Um, and God is the creator and the sovereign and, importantly, the preserver of all things. We tend to forget the preserver bit. We, we do not believe in a God who created the world and stepped back and let it just run on its own. God preserves the world in its every moment. I heard it described as, you know, if God forgot you for a moment, you would cease to exist. We continue to exist. The world continues to exist. Everything continues to exist because God remembers us at all times. Creation is not self-sustaining. It draws life from God, the giver of life. I find that really comforting. That every moment of my existence happens because God remembers me. I exist because God wills me to exist. I continue to exist because God preserves me. Do you know, in the, um, in the original communion liturgy used in both the Old Church of England and the Methodist Church, and I think actually now in the, the new liturgy that's in our uh, new hymnal, which we haven't really used for our communion here, there's a phrase, after you take communion, right after you receive the bread, um, and after you drink the, the cup, it, you know, you get the bread and you say, the body of Christ broken for you, may it preserve your body unto eternal life. 
And it's drawing on that idea that God preserves us now in this life, and the sacrament preserves you into the next life. All, our whole existence is dependent on God. It's not possible to exist apart from God. All existence is contingent on Him. And so here again, the metaphor of God as Father kind of breaks down a little bit because you know, our children continue to exist after we die. You know, their, their existence is only contingent on our existence in the very beginning. And after that it changes. But that's not true of our connection to God. Our existence is only possible because of God. Every moment of it is only possible because of God. The moment God forgets us, everything goes away. So it's a good thing God doesn't forget. It's a good thing God does not stop sustaining us. That's the first affirmation in the Catechism. Um, next week on Sunday, I'm kind of hitting two of them because I can't just do one a week and and and. and Keep on track. Uh, so next week we'll talk about God the Son and God the Spirit. Uh, and that means that the podcast next week is going to go into detail on just what Jesus does and what the Holy Spirit does. Until then, folks, God bless. <laughs>